Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Ayin Vav, page 76. So, page 76 continues, of course it does, in our discussion of the blemishes, the movement. We told you that yesterday, that it was already going to continue. Um, I want to take note of the fact, and we're going to see this on the first section of the daf, that something that we didn't say yesterday, which is that despite the fact that these blemishes can in fact invalidate a betrothal, and the question is under what terms and how far and or how soon or when does somebody have to know when, you know, when about the blemish for it to invalidate the betrothal, there were also people who got married with these specific blemishes, right? The, the notion of perfection may underlie all of this, but on the other hand, there's a practicality that they're discussing it in the context of actual people having relationships and, and you know, families marrying off their daughters, despite whatever, let's call them minor blemishes that have already been discussed. And this comes up on this daf in the discussion here of, of specifically, you know, the blemishes that are not known, meaning the point is that the, the, the fact that there's a discussion of when the blemishes come to be known acknowledges the fact that even there were blemishes that were known prior to like a later discovery after betrothal, and still those betrothals went through. Um, okay, uh, and so then this is a question, you know, did, it just, did this develop before marriage, uh, before, you know, from the beginning or only later in marriage? If, it, if the blemish discovery this develops later in marriage, then like kind of too bad for everybody, right? That should be the case. Um, and of course, this is also, I think, Perhaps we can acknowledge that some of this is a testimony to body changes as people age, but I'm not sure how far we want to get with that. We have here, it says, the Gemara says, It's again, it's a, it's a continuation of the discussion that's already taken place where now we've got an objection on Rav Ashi's opinion that was in a previous Breita, right? And I'm less concerned about the the dynamic of the discussion. Sometimes that's what we focus on. This time I'm more interested in the content here, where what happens is, um, Rabbi Meir says that, you know, with regard to any blemish that would come with her, and here's the testimony to it, that would come with her from her father's house, meaning not that they developed after the marriage, then if there is going to be any kind of claim that she didn't have them prior to betrothal, the father would have to bring proof that she didn't have those same things, those same blemishes, whatever they might have been, prior to the betrothal, right? Meaning she's married, they're discovered after the marriage. But if there's and in the, if there's a complaint about them, then the question is, did she have them prior to betrothal? And if the father wants to say that she did not, then he has to be able to prove that, which is an interesting question, right? How to do that. And so the the question is, why is Rebbe Mayer taking this position in this particular case? So the Gemara presents a, a parallel. Manali biadcha, who? The parallel is the case of, I have 100 dinarim, and they are in your possession, and you're holding on to my 100 dinar. The idea there being that, you know, at this point, at this point, after the marriage, when the blemish is discovered by the husband, and the husband wants to complain that this is some kind of false transaction, then at this point, the husband should have to come forward and say, you know, these were there all along. 
the blemish. Um, the the reference here of Manale Biatra, I have a hundred dinar in your possession. It's really very impressive to me that the Gemara at this point, we see the Gemara do this all the time with Psukim, right? Where the Gemara will cite a, a very small portion of a biblical verse. And the assumption is, you, the reader, the learner, you know what that is. Go look it up if you want to see all of it, right? Here, we've got a citation about a case. And that case gets a tremendous amount of discussion when we're actually talking about that case. Here, it's simply a reference to say, all right, that is that case. And the question is, what's the like the status presumed to be and how is that going to affect that whole discussion about a, about a monetary transaction in a very different kind of setting than this moon? The Gemara just refers to it, or Rebbe Mayer, right? It said, it said to just refer to it like that's the parallel that you all should know, you know, everything about. Um, okay. So the Gemara answers, right? What are we talking about here? What kind of moon are we talking about? What's the situation? But Yeteret. So the Gemara says it's a Yeteret, and a from the word yoter, meaning more, and it's an additional, and the claim here, she's got an extra toe, meaning she was born with six toes. You you can't discover six toes. Six toes don't emerge. A sixth toe, I should say, does not emerge upon marriage, right? This is something that clearly she would have been born with. And then the husband's claim is, in fact, he can prove the fact that this was something that she came into the marriage and the father knew about, you know, at the time of, of the betrothal. Yet Can Tarrant, I just say something here? I mean, that the medical term for this is polydactyly, and it's a super common, you know, I don't even want to call it a birth defect. I mean, it's it's super common to say. That's great. I Meaning, I, I, first of all, I certainly wouldn't have known that term, and I'm not sure I could even repeat it now. But but the the fact that it's common, I think, is going to be helpful here as we go through the Gemara, right? And also, I suppose part of the question would be how common was it back in the day? But but still, right? It's a known thing. There's no right. like... It's not usual no that it's actually a fully formed toe, you know? Like it, it'll it okay. look like a little bit of a toe. It could be a little stump of something. Hey, I, I could go on about that for a while, but you go on. Yeah, Tarrant and Myra, I might say. So the Gemara wants to understand, right? And I may have talked too much in advance. The Gemara's question is, what is your point about this additional toe, right? Meaning, how could the father argue that the toe grew after marriage, right? And the answer is, he can bring proof that the husband knew about this and he was fine. Meaning, so if the if the husband wants to complain about it after marriage, then he also has to be able to prove that he didn't know about it beforehand and was not sanguine about it, right? Because as you just said, you're Dana, right? Like this was not a big deal. This is not a this is not a a, a marriage destroying kind of blemish. I don't know what would be, right? But but it should not be. So if his complaint is, oh my goodness, she's got this particular phenomenon, and the father can prove can prove that the husband knew about this and was, you know, was, a, a, he had approved it, so to speak, right? Meaning he was willing to go forward. Then the husband has no grounds to stand on, no leg to stand on, no extra toe to stand on, to be able to say, uh, this is a blemish that appeared after marriage, or that you knew, I'm sorry, that you knew about, and I only discovered it after marriage, and now I want a divorce because of it. The answer is no, you did know about it, and you were fine, so shut up, right? Like, meaning there's no, he doesn't, it's not the kind of thing that the complaint is going to stand. The father has a good answer. 
despite the fact that this blemish was in place from from birth. And again, this is if we're talking about an animal and we want to say this might have been a blemish for the Mizbeach that would prevent the animal from being offered on the Mizbeach, I think it's pretty clear that this is a kind of blemish that has no bearing whatsoever on a woman's, you know, capacity to be a wife and etc. Right? Like, there's no there's no problem here other than, again, if there had been no disclosure, we can talk about that kind of problem. But beyond that, the Gemara makes the case, this couple got married, there was a blemish, they got married, meaning people went through with marriage, despite the fact that there's a phenomenon of a blemish. And in fact, you know, the only way that the husband here would be able to claim that the blemish was a problem is if he were not on record of having been okay with it. Look, I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. And I also wonder if it's somewhat cultural. Like, in other words, what we would consider to be a blemish or a deal breaker may be different than what they felt at the times of the Gemara. Um, we'll see more of this discussed also in tomorrow's DAF as well. Um, you know, it's even going to have a description of things that don't even sound familiar to us. Uh, what I'm intrigued by on this staff, and this is the part that I wanted to get to, is this whole issue of the moon and like the burden of proof. It's in a way presented, you know, I, I don't I don't think we're surprised by it, like completely not emotional and really in a way that it's just purely a legal transaction. Um, and so the Gemara brings sort of two parallel halachic cases to try to learn out who needs to bring the burden of proof. The first one appears on the bottom of Amad Aleph. So Rabbi Huda says the following in the name of Shmuel, right? Let's say we have somebody who wants to exchange a cow for a donkey, okay? But these two animals are not in the same place, right? So in other words, one party is going to basically acquire the, the animal by pulling it. And that is a known way of, of, of making a kinyan, right, of acquiring something. Is that a formal transaction of acquisition is by pulling the object towards you, okay? And so the other animal is basically then acquired to the other party because of that moment of transaction of the first animal, okay? Because again, it can't be done exactly at the same time because they're not exactly they're not in the same place right and so in this case the owner of the donkey pulls the cow but before the owner of the cow could pull the donkey the donkey dies right so the owner of the cow can be you know basically says the donkey dies right and uh which means that it like the transaction never took place like he never actually got to acquire that donkey because the donkey died ahead of time so the owner of the donkey has to basically bring proof that his donkey was alive at the moment that the cow was pulled. And so therefore, even though the owner of the cow didn't actually get to pull the donkey, he didn't need to pull the donkey to make that Kenyan because the Kenyan took place as soon as the owner of the donkey pulled the cow towards him and his donkey was still alive. So that's the first case that they bring. And then they try to basically explain how would this apply to the case of the bride, Vatana Tuna Kala, right? So Rabbi says that the Tana of the Mishnah also taught this similarly with the bride, right? So what's the hal with the bride? Elema, if we say Kala Bebeit Aviha, 
if it was in your father's house, right? Then, you know, Mitami, what's it comparable to? Hatsa, right there. The father has to bring the proof and takes money from the husband, right? Mate umapik, right? The father brings the proof and then takes the money. Hacha, here, the owner of the donkey, Mati Bal has to bring the proof and maintain that, you know, uh, that, you know, and then in order to maintain the possession of the cow, right? So again, they're trying to figure out, can you take this case of the cow and the donkey? You know, the proof is, and can you bring a parallel to this case of the bride, depending on where the bride is, right? So that, that's, then Rabbi Abba comes, he says, Kal Chama, right? This is actually the proof for a bride who's in the father-in-law's house. And they sort of go through uh, a bunch of different ways of trying to explain this. I'm not going to read all of it. It's more what I'm interested in is the parallel case, right? This case of the cow and the donkey. Then they come with another one, Metzive, right? So the Gemara is basically going to bring an objection to Shmuel's opinion, okay, about how to use that bright So here we have a case where a needle's found in a slaughtered animal's second stomach, okay? If that needle's found, so in other words, you shacht an animal, and then you find the needle inside of the animal. The question is, would this animal have been considered a trefa? Which basically means this animal would have died anyway. So even if you shechted it, it's not considered to be a kosher animal because it was an animal that was on its way to death. So if the, if the needle, right, is only piercing the stomach from one side, the animal's kosher. It's not a trefa. Mishnet sedadin trefa. But if it would pierce through the entire stomach itself, right, through the whole wall of the stomach, then it has the status of a trefa. Nimsala korate dam, right? If it, um, if, it, if it has a drop of congealed blood on top of the needle, right? Then we know that it pierced it before the shkita. But if it doesn't have congealed uh, blood on it, then we know that it happens after shkita and it would still maintain its status as a kosher animal. So again, they're going to try to go through this, right? Again, who would need to bring the proof? Would the owner of the animal need to bring a proof? Because in other words, if you had sold this animal to a butcher, the butcher shechs it, and then while he's, you know, preparing the meat to be sold, he finds this needle, is the burden of proof on the person who he bought the animal from the owner of the animal? So we're just fast. I'm less fascinated by how they work it out, and it's but more the idea that like this is there's something about the marriage that is completely a business transaction or more the concept of burden of proof. They're going to find its parallels based on a pure business transaction. I mean, this is completely not romantic when it comes to discussing marriage, but look, this is typical Gemara in the sense of if they want to figure out the solution to one case, right? Who has to bring the burden of proof when it comes to this issue of Mumim, they're going to just look for parallel halacha cases where there again becomes an issue of burden of proof. Um, but again, I think it underscores there is a piece of marriage that is really, and we'll see this more when we get to Masachi Kedushin, it's legalistic. It's just about the transaction of a woman going from the domain of her father to the domain of her husband. I think also this whole discussion highlights or kind of kicks us in the face with this point that what you intend is not necessarily good enough. 
right? It's not just about good intentions. If your animal has a blemish, too bad. Like you can't offer it on the Mizbeach, on the altar, no matter how sincere and dedicated you are to that offering at that time, right? Maybe Hashem will credit your good intention to, to, your, to your account, right? But not in the bringing of the Korban. You don't get to say, um, oh, but I, I really want this to be okay. Because I, in, I I worked so hard to get here. I worked so hard to make sure that this was going to be my sacrifice. Let me just do it. And it's not like the benevolent, I don't know, teacher or grandparent or even parent, right, who says, okay, this time we'll make an excuse. No, you can't. And so within the marriage example, I think there are there is more leeway for that, right, than on the – but the parallel to the animal made me think like – we don't like that idea that, you know, you, you can't have, there's no good excuse. You can't, we can't simply excuse things when they cross the line. There's a firm line at, at a certain point and all your good intentions don't, don't change that. Yeah. And I, you know, whether, right. It's not saying anybody, you know, purposefully misled someone, but it's just like, okay, you, you made, to a deal with a certain set of circumstances that was supposed to be there and you didn't totally, you know, and, and something became not true anymore. And you sort of have to figure out how do you prove what was that? You know, you have to bring a burden of proof to say like, this actually was true. You know, when, when, when I made this deal, when we entered into this arrangement together, I don't, I don't think they're, like you said, I don't think it's making a judgment about good or bad or anybody's intentions on both ways. Nobody's saying you intentionally did something bad or, you know, like you intentionally misled. But on the other hand, you still need to prove that those set of conditions were there when they needed to be there. Exactly. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.